We're back. Hello. Skeleton Songs, Series 2. Season 2. Season 2. Um, and this The time, season of darkness. Yeah, it's still goth, but it's not about gothic literature. No, it's about... Uh, the other word beginning with G that we get paid for. Gammon, yes. No, so we, we want to talk about things adjacent to games rather than actually games you know about games already well and also we want to talk about some of the big topics that you hear mentioned several times um or or lots of times uh when you listen to to gaming podcasts or you read uh journals or whatever um but want to talk about them in a different way so i think if i'm correct Mm -hmm. this episode is going to be about genre which initially you hear and you think well that's pretty boring whatever um but we're going to talk about it through the lens of um D D. Uh, Aristotle's Poetics, you promised me. That's the fella. Um, and all sorts of nonsense that you won't hear elsewhere. That's us. Nonsense you won't hear elsewhere. Put it on your bumper stickers. So, D&D. I want, I want to travel back in time to 1979-1980. I can't vouch for the year. And you have to imagine eight-year-old AK... So small. ...sitting in a swimming pool viewing gallery because I had an earache or something, so I couldn't get into the water I was skiving. Uh, in a, a run-down swimming pool in uh, East Oxford. And uh, tiny, nerdy, uh, uh, terribly shy AK uh, overhears the two boys in the seats in front of him and they're talking about hit points. And they've got a book with a blue... They've got a blue book with a dragon on the cover with the whole thing sort of blue-tinted. And, and if you are a, an aficionado of ancient RPGs, you may recognise this as... as before even the distinction between basic and expert D&D and advanced D&D. This was the very first uh, D&D rulebook which reached these shores through, I believe, the good offices of Ian Livingston originally. Uh, and I was just entranced that it changed the whole direction of my life. I hadn't been sitting in this crappy swimming pool in 1980. I probably wouldn't have ended up making games. I certainly wouldn't have played two RPGs for uh, a decade. And uh, that's... That's where we come into genre, isn't it? Because D&D established a genre that didn't exist before, but it all could have worked out quite differently. Mm. Can I talk about fish genitals? Oh, if you must. So we're, this, we're, what, we're two and a half minutes in. We've got to get there sometime. Nonsense, you can't get elsewhere. Go for it. I wrote a, my very first column, actually, for Eurogamer, because I did a, a couple of years' worth of, of uh, nonsense for them, um, about the genesis of D&D and how it, it happened to happen. And I drew on a um, uh, on an analogy from a uh, reproductive biologist, Jack Cohen, who I think is uh, dead now, but used to talk very engagingly about xenobiology. And he reckoned, and I, I can't vouch for the accuracy of this, that it so happened that we, um, the whole sort of mammalian line, uh, the whole vertebrate line, emerged from a, uh, a species of fish which happened to have their genitals near their cloaca and their, their waist ducts. He said it, ladies and gents, he said cloaca. And um, rather than, you know, on their foreheads uh, or under their armpits. And because of this, we have genitalia that are, are near the poo and the wee. And so... <laughs> Uh, to use the technical terms. And Welcome that, back to Skeleton Song. And so we've we've developed a particular set of attitudes to sex as being forbidden and dirty. And Cohen proposed, didn't argue, but proposed that if we'd happened to evolve from 
uh, fish that work differently, maybe we'd, we'd go around with our gentle somewhere less rubby and we'd, we'd end up having a completely different attitude to sex. And D&D's sort of like that because uh, it <laughs> it's so happened... It's also close to its extremities. Well, it's all about the, 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 the dungeons, the parts beneath, right? Oh, God, I regret this. Uh, what, what was that phrase that Tolkien used about Shelob? All about the dangly parts down below, the sort of ripe, fruity... I can't remember. I mean, I think you're, ex- you're projecting. Anyway. The key thing was that she was bubbling. There was lots of oh, bubbling, God, there was which the I bubbling. really, really didn't like. But it so happened that, that a particular set of wargaming nerds in 77, I think, 78, in uh, Wisconsin, happened to bolt some rules for small-scale tactics and character uh, progression onto... A set of war game rules. Everything took off from there. Where did you first hear of D and D? Well, I was going to say, I mean, not not really until. Well, I'm, I'm firstly not as much of a nerd as you, uh, or certainly didn't have as nerdy an upbringing as you. That's fair. Um, and uh, I wasn't around for the first flush of D and D. I didn't know anyone who played it. I, I'm younger than you, so I wasn't actually there when D&D first started and and once I met you and we started talking about this stuff I was pretty shocked actually that so much of the the kind of elements that mm. I would assume are part and parcel of certain genres of video games like like classes and skills and skill trees and and races and and all this kind of stuff that we just assume makes up a genre so much of that appears to be taken from D&D um, or at least TRPGs and D&D is obviously one of the biggest and most popular and enduring um, and I think there's, there's my whole generation, unless you know somebody who plays D&D, you've never connected the two. Mm. And this is what you're saying, fundamentally, that, that because things happened a certain way back in 1979 and 1980, they now make video games the way they do in 2021. Um, but, but there's very little that would connect the origin to the genres we see today. And I think that, that I mean, it's not a problem because, you know, the video games industry is one of the few industries currently doing pretty well out of this whole pandemic business. Um, But it is, I think, better if people questioned it a bit more Mm. and maybe thought, why is it the way it is? And why do we have this system set up? Because then we tend to get more innovation and and interesting things. I I was saying saying the other day that my hero is um, a small boy called Kevin from Time Bandits, um, who, in a conversation with the Supreme Being... Uh, somebody says, don't be silly, you might as well ask why we have to have uh, free will. And he says, yes, why do we have to have free will? Or why do we have to have good and evil? And it's just, it's very easy to to assume things are the way they are because they are the way they are. And actually, if you look at why they are the way they are, you find something interesting. So like you said, um, at class level, uh, original D&D didn't have anything nearly as sophisticated as a skill system. Um but you know, magic users not wearing armor, uh, orcs as a standard disposable baddie. I mean, they also in, in, introduced things like didn't they have like hit points and magic yes. points, which is which is just you have a sort of scale which you now assume you, goes up and down with your skill level or the, the actions you take, which ultimately comes from this sense of you have one to ten magic points. So they did have hit points. They didn't have magic points, and that's I think exactly the kind of um, random evolutionary consequence that, that we're talking about. In original flavor D and D and and uh, D still to this day with, with a lot of character classes, uh, you decide which spells you have access to at the beginning of the day, and you you memorize those spells and you can use them up. So if you decide as a wizard that you want to uh, your, your, your second level spell uh, or third or whatever it is to be uh, uh, web, um, 
rather than the levitation then you end up with three web spells and if you you find yourself in no situations where you need a web then you're out of luck and the reason this is the case is because of jack vance who as you know i adore jack vance's very first set of novels the dying earth stuff uh he happened upon this uh idea that magicians could squeeze a few spells into their brain at a time and spells are so powerful you can't fit many in and they'll discharge themselves once used Gary Guy actually read this in the 70s and he thought huh, that sounds like an easy way to control the number of spells that you can use a day now magic points are generally a much better system because they're simpler because they don't require you to write down the list of spells you memorise because there's more versatility but uh, and, and most other uh, games went that way or, or, or something adjacent but you can still play plenty of CRPGs that have memorised spells on the D&D basis because Gary Gygax happened to be more of a fan of Jack Vance than he was of Tolkien. Which was a mistake in my book, but... I, I don't know. It happened the way... I don't ha- know. Really? You choose yeah. Vance over Tolkien? Oh, don't make me murder my, my <laughs> fucking Sophie's Choice Firstborn babies. Uh, but this is interesting because cause my take on, on drama is a slightly broader look at it um i i approach it fundamentally from a kind of marketingy consumery thing and and my spiel is essentially it is both useful and useless uh, you sound like a literature student you're i do not sound like an idiot but but i will explain it thus um that that genre is this kind of um byword that we use to immediately communicate to somebody who doesn't know anything about a game what kind of game it is so if i'm the sort of person who likes uh skyrim i'm also the sort of person who's going to probably like fallout now i could say to the person who's played skyrim oh well if you like this there's a game that's full of guns set in an apocalyptic wasteland where you collect stuff and then also there are quests and they might go okay yeah that sounds my kind of thing or i could say you like an open world rpg bam you should play this game and that is a system that a lot of people understand. It's a system on which a lot of our um, stores are based. So Steam puts a hell of a lot of emphasis on Steam tags and mm-hmm. descriptions. And you can literally click through genre pages to find, you know, the top RPGs, the top simulators, the top visual novels, whatever it is. Um, but that also is uh, an albatross around our neck because you and I particularly mm-hmm. set out to try and make innovative games that people haven't seen before. So when we were making Cult of Simulator... Um, as your marketing director of a team of two, um, I found it quite hard to work out how to describe it. Because yeah. what is Cult of Simulator? Well, it's a Lovecraftian horror game that's also a narrative game that's played through the interface of cards on a tabletop. But it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure, and it's an RPG, but it's also a simulator because it says simulator in the title, and you're simulating being a cult. This is notoriously a problem with Fallen London, too. Very was it? Yeah. Which, for people who don't know, was AK's first game, really, yes. wasn't it? It's a video game. Um, and, and you know, so that's wonderful because if you can get somebody and you can say actually it doesn't fit into any category, most people are interested because they're like, oh yeah, bring it on. What's this new category that you got? And that's that's a great hook. But on the other hand, I can't immediately communicate to somebody like that exactly what this game is. And seeing as you know, people aren't interested in everything they see and they're busy and, and you've got to grab people's attention when you can, that's a problem. On the flip side, from a consumer's and a gamer's point of view, um, genres are so big that often they're meaningless. So I mm. notice again, thinking about the PC game landscape, that Steam have started um, incrementally uh, digging into the genres. So it's no longer just an RPG. It's now, okay, what do you want? Do you want a JRPG? Do you want a simulator RPG? Do you want a tabletop RPG? Do you want an RPG You know that, that, that has this or that? Because nowadays there are so many games and, and 
there's so much variety that saying something is just one of the big genres like mm. simulator or, or, or I don't know fighting game or whatever it is doesn't actually communicate that much because within that gigantic pool of, of titles there's going to be lots of stuff that actually aren't for you um, so, so we rely on it but it's also not good enough but it's also incredibly helpful but it's also rubbish I think I think so, so, so from a marketing point of view from a, a consumer point of view uh, I think I think you're bang on I think genres work in other ways well I think when you are making games or making art generally they provide you with some stable points to base assumptions on so here's a really basic example in the 90s uh, real-time strategy games were uh, at their at their peak and I know you're not an RTS lady really um, but the s- standard um, convention in RTSs is that you click on a unit you left click on a unit to select it and then you right click to move attack and that wasn't the case in ex- every RTS some RTSs you left click to select and then left click to move mm. uh, which is arguably a worse system innately but there's nothing sort of fundamental about it it's really confusing switching from one RTS to another in the late 90s trying to remember which is which and in the end it's settled one convention so if I were making an RTS tomorrow anything where you select you need to move it mm. I do left click select right click move and there's nothing fundamental that says that has to be the case or that mice has to have two buttons rather than five or, or, or that um, user mouse to do it but by doing that you know you start off with the point that um, that makes sense to people and even Cult of Simulator which doesn't fit at all you, you know you left click to pick something up and select it it's a, mm. it's a, 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 a basic point of uh, access and what are well, the and actually you, you use it in an interesting way as well because you've got a lifelong obsession with cards and you always say that the reason you like cards is because they, they come with a, with a set yeah. of expectations which you can then play with so when you give somebody a card people expect certain things from it like you expect there to be multiple cards because you're used to them being in a, in a deck you expect them to have an image and some information on but not so much information mm. you wouldn't click on a card and expect to have a whole kind of novel length entry to read um, you expect to be able to play them in combination with each other um, all this kind of stuff so you're actually using a, a totally different set of uh, existing rules which is essentially what a genre is yeah. within a genre itself and the other thing about a genre from a creative point of view is that you can use the existing assumptions uh, as a basis subversion um, and cards for example are, are things you hold on to and value and, and keep and uh, in Cultist Simulator, uh, there are occasions where we deliberately set a card on fire. We'll do it quite early <laughs> to, to say to you, you know, don't get too attached to this. And legacy games, uh, famously, there's a whole movement of games where you end up marking or tearing up cards. That does feel wrong, doesn't it? Exactly. Didn't like that. And it wouldn't feel uh, as wrong and therefore as interesting if it weren't for the well-established conventions. Mm. But Steam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fancy up the joint by proposing... Uh, two approaches to genre and there's the Aristotelian <laughs> and the Wittgensteinian oh yes the, the classic Aristotelian Wittgensteinian issue so Steam obviously you know falls on the Wittgensteinian side nowadays uh, because it's German and dead because uh, the um, uh, so Aristotle I, I learnt uh, the other day because uh, my knowledge is much shallower than it appears uh, was uh, so Aristotle's Poetics established the, uh, uh, a lot of the things that we think about fundamentals uh, in terms of, of, of poetry and drama. 
And Aristotle, again, as you will know, because you're more of a literature buff, laid down a lot of the things we just take for granted about the way that drama and poetry work these days. And he said, you know, this is tragedy and this is mm. uh, comedy and these are the kind of forms you should use when you're talking about it. And the point is he says should. And he draws bright lines and he says, you know, this is on this side of the fence tragedy, on the other side of the fence is comedy. Wittgenstein, on the other hand, uh, I mean, I, I think he, he said many different things in, in many different directions, many different times. But one of the points he made was the idea of family resemblances, that often you're trying to categorise things. It's very hard to categorise things in a way that is... Um, consistent all down the line. If you say chairs have four legs, then is a stool a chair? Is a chair that's had its leg sawn off a chair? Is a chair that's had all its legs sawn off a chair? Panthers. Uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, Panthers, is Panthers. a chair? Leopards. Leopards are, 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 are black and yellow unless they're uh, melanistic leopards. Panthers, in which case they're, they're black. So so what's a, 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 what distinguishes a leopard? And he was actually talking interestingly for our purposes, about games. He said that if you try to define a game, this is long before video games, of course, uh, you can talk about card games, you can talk about solitaire games, you can talk about playground games, and you will find as many differences as you find similarities. And you can trace a path where you say, well, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're following rules uh, in a game, but then do children play games? Do we use the same word to describe them? Yes, because they've got... Uh, other things in common with with other games that are more rule based, even if not all children's playground games are are, are structured. So, um, one way to deal with genre is to have uh, like an old style video store. You, you've got romantic comedy here, you've got horror here, you've got weird European stuff over here, uh, or the uh, three genres. The three genres, <laughs> uh, and uh, and David Lynch, uh, and. Uh, the other is the Wittgenstein approach, the steam approach of, here's a thread, why don't you follow the thread and see where it takes you? Mm. And if you go down to the uh, bottom of steam, um, in the bottom of steam you find all kinds of rubbish, uh, you go down to the, the, the bottom of steam store page and look at the games like this, you know, you can, you can follow through. And they've got a bunch of experiments around following this thread or finding what things are similar and what things are, are, are not. And... The other side, the Aristotelian side of the genre, is your old friend and mine, the um, Berlin interpretation. I was going to, to mention this. So I have a long-standing, um, entirely personal vendetta with roguelikes and roguelites. I have been scarred by, early on, naively, in the development of Culture Simulator. I brightly decided, well, you know, AK makes roguelike games. So I will pop into the um, subreddit, our roguelikes, and just talk about Cultist Simulator and see see what people think. And people did not think good things about Cultist Simulator in the R Roguelikes subreddit. It turns out, as you probably know, that a bunch of nerds in the 80s sat around and basically wrote a list of things that apparently mean a game is a roguelike. Which, again, if you haven't ever thought about roguelikes, are games that are like an original game called Rogue. So, innovation and imagination off the charts here, people. We now have a list of things that makes a game like a game called Rogue, which I would like to tell you is older than I am. I would like to point out that it was not in fact the 1980s, but the Roguelike Development Conference in 2008. You see, this is exactly what happens to people, ladies and gentlemen, when, when they start talking about the Berlin Convention. They turn into android dweebos. The Berlin interpretation. Whatever! And the point is, that this is the other thing about genres, right, is that they're, they're bases of identity. And uh, if you say to a 
uh, film buff. Oh yeah, I saw the new Adam Sandler the other day. Do you do you watch much out Adam Sandler? You know, you'll probably see lines develop on their forehead uh, because when they you know think about film, they're probably thinking more about Bergman than uh, last year's Hollywood stuff. But that sort of distinction is invisible unless you give a shit. Mm. and it's easy for us to be a bit snooty about uh, roguelike purists who take it very seriously and don't like their lawn being invaded but also when I say I work in video games somebody says oh yeah I play that, that FIFA do you oh do that God. kind of thing yeah. and it, oh my god but, but from the outside what's 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 the difference no right? exactly and, I, and I, I feel like legally I should say that I have nothing against roguelikes and people who love roguelikes in fact please buy my game it's great and I love you but I think it's an interesting way of dealing with genre right because if, you, if you're saying we've got the aristotelian and the wittgensteinian approach the 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 roguelike approach i think is probably the most formalist that i've seen it says mm. if it if it does not meet some of these criteria this is not a roguelike it doesn't just say i don't know it's an rpg because you're role-playing a character at some point um and that has led to the creation of the roguelite which is like it meets like one of the criteria but a lot of the of the proper kind of fundamentalists would not accept it as a rogue like um, and, and so that's an interesting deviation mm. already from people who kind of like these kind of games. And if you put a human in front of these games, they could very quickly tell you this is a roguelike or this is not generally considered a roguelike. But if you ask a machine to go down a list of criteria, it's often a bit more complicated than that. And this, you mentioned sort of the Aristotelian literature side of things. And there, there is a school of thought that I won't go into because it's complicated and not about games called the Russian formalists who um, believed that there were, I think, seven stories in the world. Mm-hmm. That was that was it, um, and every story ever told was uh, an extrapolation of one of these original seven stories. So they were very interested in going through all fiction and trying to to codify it and say this is this story, and this is that story, and and you know it's an interesting approach. I don't personally think it's particularly helpful for what I'm interested in when I read books, but 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 again, it's a sort of sense of putting things in their proper genre, mm. um, because if you think about books, what you have now is fiction and non-fiction. Well, that's extremely broad but, but but helpful because I want to know if this is essentially true and then once you're in fiction you've got just like games all the subgenres, all of which will have little details about that particular title that might make it fit perfectly in one genre but maybe only half fit in another genre mm. and people would argue about what genre it goes in um, so, so yeah it's the same thing I I think god damn it no it's gone straight out of my head uh can you cut this out so I sound smarter afterwards? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely going to do that, listeners. Definitely going to happen. Uh, so one of the things about genre is that if it, we have to divide the world into categories all the time. Or we... A little monkey brain's we're, not we're, But yeah. And it's, you know, edible and non-edible. And, you know, uh, <laughs> European and non-European. That is non-European, the only distinction that matters. Uh, subatomic versus macroscopic. All, all this sort of stuff. But of course, as soon as you start looking at... Um, distinctions you find things that cross the lines things that don't fit and there's this this thing called the psorites paradox the psorites fallacy which points out that if you everyone knows what a heap of sand is and everyone knows what a grain of sand is but if you take one grain of sand away from a heap at a time when does it stop being a heap there's something you look at and say that's not a heap it's it's like some sand Uh, but but when when do you cross that line but it doesn't mean the, the, the term heap is useless any more than the term you know, macroscopic or edible is useless, even though I, I wouldn't eat geoduck or, or um, uh, other uh, foods not familiar to my native cuisine. So this is, comes back to you saying it's useful and useless. Well, it's within the context, right? So I think I think your edible versus inedible is, is, is probably the most significant distinction that we as animals make. 
because we need to eat to survive and it's important to know what we can eat and what we cannot eat um but in the context of where would you like to go for valentine's day darling Mm. uh it's totally useless to say well i'd like to go somewhere that serves edible food because that is correct so would i but it doesn't help in the context of actually making a decision about something which is exactly what the genre labels are for Mm. they're not there just to just to sort of exist and just sort of float above you like a halo i really want a mexican (laughs) Uh, dinner Dinner. yes (laughs) um i do know (laughs) but um but yeah but out of context it's 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 useless fucking cyberpunk wow okay so you brought that up with like five minutes left I have I just uh, uh, poor cyberpunk no so when I say fucking cyberpunk what I mean is uh, the so so if you play games you're probably aware that um, CD Projekt Red brought out cyberpunk 2077 no no one's heard of it Uh, the marketing campaign video it's an RPG and it's open world it's really good it was pretty buggy on its launch um, I played it on PC it was much better and I thoroughly enjoyed it and recommend the hell out of it there are a lot of, of things said about it some are true some are not but I think the thing I found most eye-rolling was the degree to which people have tried to, to gatekeep cyberpunk which was a loose phrase for a certain style of um, uh, literature not even really a genre uh, back in really the 80s and it, it's been made to bear the weight of a lot of hobby horses interpretations uh, since notoriously even at the time people were very snotty about so being called a, a movement but just like film noir people happen on a noir or a cyberpunk text that they have affection for and then um, it's it, oddly tempting to gatekeep uh, things that they don't fit what what they happen to think of as cyberpunk. Mm. So that's been a bit of a diffuse rant and let me try to do something more useful by saying why do film noir and cyberpunk I think both are the the labels I see people arguing most fiercely about whether or not they are. So why do those labels provoke that particular response? Well, I think with cyberpunk, there's two things. There's a kind of moral aspect to it, um, which is people say cyberpunk is sort of anti-establishment and it's against big corporations and, and yada yada. It's, it's pro the little guy. And, and like everything, it's more complicated than that. It absolutely does have those elements in it. But I wouldn't say it's a fundamentally moral genre. I think it's actually a fundamentally amoral genre that's mm. basically poking fun as the world as they think it might be from the Which 80s. Which is funny because that's noir as well really isn't it well the other thing that makes noir and and cyberpunk i think a very interesting comparison is the visual aspects they have such a strong visual identity that you can establish the genre in film with a single shot it doesn't need to be Mm. motion if you have a a sharp contrasting shadow on a man's face in a trench coat everyone immediately goes this is film noir Mm. and if you have the color pink on a rainy city and then there's a Mm -hmm. hot guy with a gun everyone's like it's clearly cyberpunk um, Neil and again Neil features them both which is interesting isn't it yeah yeah um, but but I think I think the problem that these genres have which maybe lends itself to gatekeeping more than other genres is because of their incredibly strong visual identity I think they also have a very strong um, temporal location so film noir as everyone knows is kind of 1940s and mm. it's, it's it's sleek cars and, and Luger pistols and, and hats and cyberpunk is 80s so it's um new synth and neon and big jackets and girls with big hair 
Mm. Um, and, and, and these identities are part and parcel of the genre as it's now packaged up. So you could totally make uh, a film, a, a noir-ish game or a cyberpunk-ish game that didn't have those visuals, but it would be hard to communicate to a player that this game was a cyberpunk game incorporating all of the traditional elements mm. of cyberpunk if it didn't look like that because that's just not what people expect and that goes back to the whole fundamental point of genre which is setting expectations in a player um, so so most people don't do that most people keep the whole parcel as it is and say I'm making a cyberpunk game it's going to have pink neon it's going to have rain it's going to be set in a big city there's going to be some bad corporations and you're going to take it down as a sort of slightly amoral little guy and there's going to be some hacking and everyone goes hooray we love cyberpunk um, but, but I think because it has such a strong identity and because people feel it is one thing and it so often does conform to that thing mm. um, it, it's harder to branch out and therefore if you do branch out like I think Cyberpunk 2077 was doing a lot of interesting things and it did um, I don't know it still felt like an applicable story to tell in 2021 um, even though a lot of people said oh you know it, it hasn't done anything new since the 80s it's still stuck in the 80s and even you know um, Blade Runner which is probably the biggest uh the most popular example of cyberpunk in, in modern co- consciousness. I mean, those films changed a lot of people's lives. Um, even that still feels like it's doing something more than I do, itself. I really, I know you don't believe it, but I do feel the idea that cyberpunk 2077 didn't do anything new. I saw narrative <laughs> effects in there again and again and again that I have never seen in game or film. And I also saw an awful lot of very familiar uh, sort of sub-GTA 5 stuff, which is, is fine, it's a big game. But there's 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 real innovation there. I think the your your uh, bang on when you talk about the visual uh, identities of them because you couldn't make a romantic comedy and say without this Julia is, Roberts, <laughs> without, it's illegal. <laughs> you couldn't make a romantic comedy and say uh, well, you couldn't make something you said was a romantic comedy uh, and say this is going to be a um, sad um, f- film about tortoises with no dialogue I mean just, <laughs> it, it wouldn't be a romantic comedy you're still thinking about Blade Runner aren't you but you could put to- I, I, I am actually now you mentioned it but yeah you could you could put a tortoise in a, a big hair wig um, uh, rain on him or her <laughs> and hard to tell with tortoises and, and then um, uh, you know a spaniel night over it and it will be a cyberpunk uh, tortoise and to synthwave and yeah cyberpunk tortoise and it will break reddit and then, and then people would, would, would say well this is outrageous but you know and the same thing if you, if you use cyberpunk um iconography yeah. to make a something that's fundamentally a romantic comedy yeah. a lot of people would, would be disoriented and possibly cross yeah. and I think they'd be much more cross if the filmmaker tried to claim it was cyberpunk but I think I think also part of it is, is the tropes which I would say is a sort of narrative version of, of the visual identity yeah. so for example if we go to film noir um, we say well okay one of the tropes is that <clears throat> the central character is a hard boiled uh, detective with a heart of gold but he's a graphic stereo and he gets beaten up a lot, hmm. right? Absolutely fantastic. He's also um, going to be paired with a femme fatale, who is a sexy lady who almost certainly did the murder, um, <clears throat> who comes in and makes trouble. Um, and then around that, you, you can arrange whatever characters you like, but those are two really central tropes of film noir. Hmm. Um, and I think if you made a film noir game and you really wanted to, to make it a, a traditional genre game, you would probably have to have a sexy lady who made trouble. And a lot of mm. people in 2021 would say, well, I'm really bored of women being over-sexualized and um, portrayed as, as you know temptresses and it's rubbish, um, and I think you should do better. But of course, 
maybe that's not the intention of the creator, not to be sexist, but to refer back to an existing trope in a genre which was popularised in the 1930s and 40s, where sexism was, was a real thing. And that, again, I think is one of the, the points. You said they're both very temporary located. And, and yeah, you can't transfer sexual politics from either the 1940s or the 1980s today without causing some reactions. And it's not just the things that people would find shocking. There's things that aren't relevant now that are relevant then. Um, Gibson famously held his hand up um, to having, you know, he's widely considered the, the godfather of cyberpunk, and and he um, uh, the, the was attending for, surgeon for predicting lots and lots of things very accurately, but not mobile phones. Infamously, not mobile phones, and actually, he, he's a great example because um, I read Neuromancer like everybody um, when I was at university, and it was great in lots of ways, and obviously set set uh, cyberpunk off on its particular journey. Hmm. Um, and I thought recently, with Cyberpunk 2077 coming out, I should read another Gibson, because I haven't read that much, and, you know, I enjoyed Neuromancer, so I read his most recent one, which is called Agency. Um, and I turned to you after getting through a couple of chapters, and I said, this feels old. Um, and he's still talking about all the shiny, cool tech mm. that he was talking about in Neuromancer, which is great. As a nerd, I want to hear lots of stories about how cool tech is, you know, uh, disrupting society. Um, and he had updated it, of course, so rather than it being... Uh, a sort of uh, GPU which hacks into a corporate network um, off a floppy disk, as it was in Neuromancer. It is now um, some sort of AR, AI tech that you wear in a pair of glasses. Mm. And, and this is the new thing. So it's not like he's just repeating exactly the same story. He's, he's updating the tech. He's, he's obviously a good writer. And he's interested in the same things. But, but the way he talked about it felt old. He was talking a lot about Chrome. And I thought, I can't remember, as a millennial, the last time anybody has ever mentioned or used Chrome, ever. And he was talking about kind of like rocker dive bars when it was all a bit scary, but like you could kind of get in if you knew the bouncer. And again, that feels kind of like a kind of 80s trope that you, that you get the kind of protagonist going down to a scary dive bar in Camden or whatever it was. And, and sure, they still exist, but it's not really what you hear talked about anymore. So, so it is a fascinating genre that I think allows for a lot of playfulness because if you have these existing tropes, you can just do it straight and you can just have, you know, uh, a nerd hero and a sexy ninja woman and an evil corporate in a suit um, or you can have all those tropes and do something a bit more interesting with it which I think what CDPR did with mm. Cyberpunk um, but it does require people to actually engage with it with an open mind for, to, for them to see what's being done with a lot of the pieces they remember from the 80s and if we're talking film noir from the 40s and 30s um, and maybe that's partly why there is this sort of clash because people see tropes and they immediately go you know they do not collect money they pass go mm. and it means that that is a sexist trope or, or that is inappropriate for modern age or, or that's boring I've seen that before and actually if you play it like you did and, and spend hours and hours and hours in it you know maybe people's minds would change maybe it wouldn't people's opinions are absolutely valid whatever they are of course but but I think a lot of people because it is such a clearly defined genre took one look at it and mm. thought isn't it ironic that a game all about um, destroying the establishment and hating corporates was made by a giant company and made loads of money and was released a bit buggily. And I mean, I think it's worth point. pointing out that, that, that uh, CDPR, although they are obviously um, wealthy and, and run by wealthy people, they're uh, the closest thing. No, they are a mega indie. I mean, they've always um, walked their own path. Uh, and if anybody was going to to make a game which pushed against established norms and if you thought it was going to be a bunch of them. I don't think Polish the point of underdogs. is to push against established norms I think an awful lot of Gibson's books and I like Gibson I think I've read everything 
Um, uh, he's, he's written and, and at least enjoyed it and sometimes loved it. But an awful lot of Gibson books are basically shopping and fucking novels. <laughs> Where you know you, you spend a lot of time enjoying it the, is James Bond for nerds. It really it's is exactly that. So so you, you what you often get is 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 either a battle scarred old veteran or a naive or not, uh, often young heroine, uh, sometimes hero, who's employed by a mysterious evil yeah. uh, presence. And I remember Kanzira. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, somebody sort of gets a black credit card and is sent out shopping. Uh, the dream to, to buy stuff in the dream so so you have your cake and eat it because what you've got is this fundamentally moral person who eventually realizes they're working for a wrong and mm. and betrays him uh obviously after he's tried to betray them uh, but in the meantime they and we can enjoy what it's like to live the luxury lifestyle and gibson is obviously fascinated by russian oligarchs and beautiful tech um design and all the rest of it that could also be part of why um cyberpunk in particular is such a sort of um people have such strong opinions about it and such conflicting feelings about it because when I started seeing people say things like oh the irony of cyberpunk 2077 being a cyberpunk game lol I went and looked up cyberpunk as a genre um, because I knew that it was Neuromancer and Gibson but I, I think probably like many people was wrong um, it actually started in the 60s and 70s and it wasn't until Neuromancer in the 80s that it really took off with a particular bent but if you go back to the originals if you do a sort of Berlin interpretation on it and you say mm. originally what cyberpunk was is it isn't defined by the, the 80s look and the wallet full of I don't know plastic banknotes and whatever it is it's mm. defined by, by some other stuff and I'm, I'm not a specialist on it. So, so I think this is where the kind of moral interpretation comes in the fact that it's meant to be anti-establishment and it's a sort of a dystopia and kind of what the world will be if we continue down this black, dark path and yada, yada, yada. But it kind of met this fork in a road when, when Neuromancer came out. And now there are loads of people who, who, when they think of cyberpunk, think entirely of the Gibsonian side of it. And of course, there are some traditionalists who have read the Wikipedia page like me mm. and they know that there are some original changes. Mm. But in the common... Uh, mindset there is only one it is it is neuromancer and everything that looks like neuromancer just as and people think that that all noir has to start with a dame who's trouble coming into the office which to so. my experience it does but but it's a bit but, like saying you yeah. know roguelikes are now defined by cultist simulator because uh, in my yeah. fantasy land cultist simulator was the biggest and most successful game ever made so the berlin interpretation doesn't matter anymore everyone now knows that in order to be a roguelike you have to be made of cards and have your writing in it and have a spooky soundtrack by a Canadian who lives in the forest and that's what a roguelike is and of course there are all these people in the background going no this isn't really my roguelike this is wrong um, but 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 if, if it kind of reaches that water cooler level of everyone now agrees yeah. this is the way it is kind of back to your D&D thing um, you, you can't fight that that is what it is we've done a circle we have done a circle I was going to say I was going to end I hope it was a good circle it uh, was oval Ovoid. An egg. Ellipse. We've done an egg. Yeah. Great. I love eggs. Everyone knows that. Uh, the, <laughs> I'm going to end on a literary note by talking about um, Borges talking about Kafka. Oh, my God. Is yeah. this because you, you stumbled earlier on and you feel embarrassed? Uh, might be. No, well, I, I, what Borges said about Kafka is that he, he started reading Kafka and he thought he was a really unique voice. And he is. But also, he kept identifying Kafka-like elements in a bunch of other writers, some of whom lived and died before Kafka, like, like um, Robert Browning, I think, was one of the people he cited. And he said that Kafka, like all other writers, creates his own precursors because these qualities, which show up in a bunch of other people, get united in somebody like Kafka. Right. And they've been there all along, but you look at them differently once you see one place and they're all united. And I think 
you know, Gibson, I, I said Godfather rather than Father because I... Because um, he's a mafia man? Because I wouldn't want to claim him as the progenitor of Cyberpunk mm. because, you know, people, he's, he's the name people go to and he's the most famous. But um, I... Uh, he, he, he brought a bunch of things into into relief and he drew them together mm. um, he captured the imaginations of people he did and but he, he took elements from things like shockwave rider and sheep look up and uh philip dick i guess is is uh proto cyberpunk that um that, that hadn't been united in the way he united them before with the sort of dispassionate um uh urban cool that he enjoyed the uh canadians canadians are always cooler than people think uh, <laughs> But the, I, I'm, the last thing I'm going to say is a really nasty quote. Is this the one that makes you upset? No, this is a different one. Okay. Uh, so this it's is going to make me upset. John Bunner's The Sheep Look Up uh, was, I guess, a proto-cyberpunk novel. I think it's one of the things that's normally cited as. And I read it when I was quite young. It depressed the hell out of me. And it's called The Sheep Look Up because it's got an opening quote from Milton's Lycidas. Right. Which goes as follows. Right. I still remember it. The hungry sheep look up and are not fed, but swollen with wind, and the rank mist they draw, rot inwardly, and foul contagion spread. It's pretty seasonal, Kim Milton! Foul contagion spread. Well, I, I thought we were going to end on a lovely note about, you know, how, nah. how everyone can have their own version of everything and we're all friends, but you've ended it on rotting sheep. After starting it, lest we forget, with fish genitalia. It's the circle of life, the ellipse of life. The egg of life. The egg of life. Well, that's your lot, people. Let us know what you think. If you have opinions on cyberpunk, on genre, on roguelikes. I'm really scared that roguelike fans are now going to come and shout at me. Um, thanks for listening. Um, have a spooky day. Have a spooky day. Ooh.